thank you so much, Bill. It is a true pleasure to be back here at Asbury and especially back in chapel. Uh, my thanks go to everyone who's made this trip possible and accommodated me in various ways, and uh, especially I want to lift up Professor David Bauer and, and Bill Arnold. The memories of my three years uh, teaching here, as you've already heard, they, they are the pinnacle, but uh, the memories are never far from my mind and the friendships that I made during that time that persist to this day or as we'd say, ad if you're in Hebrew class, uh, that, that, those remain truly precious uh, up to this present moment. I'm thankful for those. Uh, I first preached in this pulpit way back when, in spring of 1999, at the ripe old age of 28. Uh, it was my first sermon in my first professorial appointment. Well, to clarify for a second, it wasn't my first sermon ever, okay? It was just my first sermon as a full-time seminary professor. Uh, that being said, it did have a kind of newbie feel about it. Uh, for example, the text for the sermon was the book of Job. <laughs> the entire book of Job. Yes, for real. And, no, of course, we didn't read the whole book of Job, just most of it. But uh, no, now maybe, maybe the sermon earned uh, style points for the text selection or, or at least extra credit for bravado. But a sermon on the entire book of Job seems, in retrospect, ill-advised, <laughs> brash, a bit too optimistic, the, the sober subject matter of Job notwithstanding. Um, so now, today, 24 years later, uh, most definitely older and hopefully a wee bit wiser, I've decided to revisit Job once again in the very same pulpit. Why not? Job seems easy enough. But this time, instead of the whole book of Job, I've decided to focus on a much smaller unit of text. In fact, at the end of the day, this sermon is really about just one very tiny little word. A word that makes all the difference in the world. That one little word is the preposition to. It's quite small, only two letters in English. I suspect you knew that part already. And the same is true for one of its Hebrew equivalents, El, a preposition that occurs twice in Job 42, where it is translated of in the NRSV. You haven't spoken correctly of me, God says to Eliphaz and company. Now, you'll remember the story of Job, right? Great guy, blameless, perfect even. His kids partied a little bit much, but other than that, pretty solid dude. Unfortunately for him, Job is so good that he attracts the attention of God and a heavenly lawyer type who make a wager on how good he really is. In the process, as part of this cosmic bet, Job loses all sorts of stuff and all kinds of people, including his kids. Then he loses his health. He ends up sitting on an ash heap, scraping his oozing sores with a piece of broken pottery, completely broken himself, all to see if he really serves God for nothing or if he's just in it for the bag of dough. And as if all that wasn't bad enough, then Job's friends show up, three of them, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. Best to put friends here in scare quotes. <laughs> Frenemies would be more accurate, but likely far too generous. What follows thereafter is a lengthy discussion among Job and his three friends, shall we say, about what has happened to him and why. 
Job is pretty sure that he's righteous and so suffers unjustly. His friends are quite clear that he's wrong about that and isn't righteous after all. Quite to the contrary, in fact. And they argue about it for like 30 chapters. Job eventually has had enough of all that and decides to take his case straight to God and appoint an even vicious appeal aimed directly at the throne of heaven. Then, out of the blue, another friend shows up, young Elihu, who prattles on for six more chapters, upbraiding the friends for their dismal defense of God and in the process also taking Job to task once again. You know, that goes about as well as is to be expected. Uh, No one says a single word to Elihu after he finally shuts up. Silence can be golden, as they say, and also very telling, (laughs) highly revealing. And then suddenly, and quite unexpectedly, the Lord shows up and gives Job what he's longed for and begged for, audience with Almighty God. Well, as the saying goes, it ain't all it's cracked up to be. God has a few things to say to Job, like four chapters worth. And at that point, Job appears overwhelmed or chastened or changed or comforted or some combination of all of those things. And the long debate over Job's righteousness, it seems finally at an end. But God isn't quite finished. God is never quite finished, am I right? The Lord next turns to Job's friends and has a word for them. My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, God says to Eliphaz. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That's the New Revised Standard Version. In the Blessed Common English Bible, the verse reads this way. I'm angry at you and your two friends because you haven't spoken about me correctly, as did my servant Job. Either way, either way, this comment should bring us up short. We need to stop for a second and contemplate this statement and make sure that we have it right. So, okay, think about it. The friends who said a whole lot of very flattering things about God, things like God does great deeds, marvelous things without number, and who asserted that God would never pervert justice or distort what is right. They, these friends, were wrong. What they said about God was incorrect. And Job, who said a whole lot of unflattering things about God, things like, I don't think God would even listen to my voice and who asserted that God mocks the misfortune of innocent people. He, Job, was right? He spoke correctly? That is the very surprising ending of the first season of Job in Netflix. (laughs) And it is a shocker, a cliffhanger. Uh, But the Hebrew preposition that is translated in the NRSV as speaking of me, and in the CEB as speaking about me, isn't quite the one we'd expect. For you Hebrew scholars out there, the preposition we'd probably expect, given such translations, is the Hebrew preposition al, which often means concerning or about. But what we get in Job 42 is the preposition el, which normally 
signals direction to or movement toward. How do I know this, you ask? Because I consulted Bill Arnold and John Choi, a guide to biblical Hebrew syntax, now in a second edition. You can add it to your cart later. Wait, you can add it to your cart later. Now, we have to admit, as Professor Arnold and Choi do, that Hebrew has a paucity of prepositions, only six or seven main ones, 18 or so total, compared to about 150 in English. So maybe, you know, maybe there's some bleed over or even confusion between some prepositions like al and el, but, but despite all that, a good case can be made and has been made by several scholars that translations of Job 42, like those found in the NRSV or the CEB, aren't exactly right because they mistake the preposition L and thus misunderstand the meaning of the phrase. If so, God doesn't say to Eliphaz and company, you haven't spoken correctly of me or about me. That, that would be or should be all. Instead, we have L. And so what God says is something like this. I'm angry at you and your two friends because you haven't spoken correctly to me like my servant Job. Hmm, that is a very different translation and a very different understanding. Now, I myself think this understanding of L as to God in Job 42 makes very good sense, not just of the syntax, but also of the literary context, and not just for this chapter, but for the whole book of Job, especially when we take a moment to reconsider these friends of his. I mean, with friends like that, right? <laughs> it's very easy to pick on these friends, especially when Job calls them liars, worthless doctors, tells them their answers are defenses of clay, insubstantial, says they comfort him with empty nothings and lies. I mean, wow, Job, tell us how you really feel about your friends. I feel like you're holding back. You need to come clean. But it's a lot harder to be hard on the friends when we stop and look closely at what they themselves say. I mean, what they themselves say isn't all bad. We'd want to agree with some of that, maybe even a lot of it. These friends deserve some credit. They seem to have passed their seminary classes and not just barely. These friends know a lot about God, a lot of truth about God, and they also know how to say what they know. That means, first, that they pass their Bible classes, and not just barely, since much of what they say resonates with other parts of Scripture, especially that juggernaut known as Deuteronomy, but also that massive hymn book known as the Psalms. And they also pass their theology classes, and not just barely, since many of, much of what they say frequently jives with solid theological assertions about the Lord, both inside and outside of Scripture. And they also pass their preaching classes, and not just barely, since they know how to put all of the above artfully, even poetically. Not too shabby. Give these friends an MDiv, I say. <laughs> Throw in a demon, maybe to boot. But, we might ask, did they pass their pastoral care classes? 
<laughs> well, maybe not, or maybe not so strong, because they drop a whole lot of cold, hard, brutal theological facts on Job, not within the safety of a classroom discussion, but instead, while Job sits on the ash heap, bereaved and grieved. Or, to put it in more contemporary terms, they lecture Job about his suffering while he's sitting in the ICU, sitting in the chemo treatment center, or maybe when he's at the morgue, identifying the bodies. Now, don't get me wrong, those places, all of those places, are also places for theology, real theology, mind you, of the most significant kind. But theology in those places tends to be, or, or at least should be, less argumentative, less philosophical, less abstract, a bit softer, if you will, far more discreet, and a great deal more gracious. So, sure, the friends have some things to learn. In fact, it's possible, as some people have offered, to, to, to view the whole entire book of Job as a great crisis in pastoral care. Maybe so. But in my judgment, Job's problems are not, at the end of the day, or at root, pastoral care problems. They are, instead, theological problems. Because whether we like it or not, the book makes God the ultimate and most direct source of Job's disconsolation, loss, bereavement, and grief. And so to give the friends a break for a moment, it might be the case that even if they'd played their pastoral care cards perfectly, it just wouldn't have mattered. It was just a matter of time before Job had to go above their heads because he knew that his ultimate problem was God. He knew, as Karl Barth put it famously, er hat tun mit God, Job has to do with God. And so, Job makes his final appeal. And what do you know? What do you know? But God acknowledges it and acknowledges Job. And that is no small thing because the book asserts that God really does come exactly as Job requested, and precisely where he wanted and needed most to encounter God. Seen in that light, perhaps we could say God may be the ultimate pastoral caregiver, because the Lord shows up at the ash heap, in the ICU, in the cancer ward, at the morgue. Maybe so. But then again, maybe not in light of what God actually says to Job when God shows up. Job's friends gave him a well-meaning but ill-timed theology lecture, but God gives Job something else altogether, something perhaps maybe even worse. God gives Job a pyrotechnical display of sound and light, creation and chaos that seems completely unrelated to his plight. A little bit of astronomy, a little meteorology, and tons of zoology. It's as if God says, forget your pain, Job, and look at all these amazing animals. Check it out. What do you say? Crazy, right? Uh, yeah, if you say so, God. I'm still, you know, wondering about what I do about this sore. But as odd as God's answer is, I think it actually underscores that what's happening here in the book of Job is fundamentally not, fundamentally not about being kind or listening, or offering care. 
You know, by the way, you don't have to go to seminary to learn how to be kind, to learn how to listen, and how to offer care. Theology is more than that, and that's what the book of Job is about, more than all those things. It is about, at the bottom and at the end of the day, theology, proper discourse about God. And at the end of the book, all of that seems to hinge and hang on this one tiny little two-lettered preposition L that's usually best translated as two. You have not spoken rightly to me, God says, like my servant Job. Not, not about me, you see, because, well, the friends get some things quite right about God. They weren't all wrong about that. And maybe, just maybe, Job got some things wrong about God. Maybe he wasn't all right about all that. But what Job gets exactly right and what the friends get completely wrong is that Job spoke to God, not just about God. Let me say that again. What Job gets exactly right and what the friends get completely wrong is that Job spoke to God, not just about God. The friends, however, studious and earnest theologians that they were, well, they remained exclusively in about God mode. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that the first theologian recorded in Scripture is that serpent in the Garden of Eden who spoke so confidently about God. And we know how that ended up, don't we? But that feels like a low blow, doesn't it? Especially in a place like this. I mean, we're all theologians around here, trying to be at any rate and trying to be good at it. It's not very nice, is it, for a guest preacher who's a seminary professor himself, a theologian too, to come and put a beat down on a bunch of other theologians and theologians in training about not doing their jobs right. Fair enough. Good point. No offense intended. But, but to be fully transparent, I'm not trying to beat anybody down. I'm trying to preach everyone up. I'm trying to preach all of us up to God and up to the true and best meaning of theology. Speech, discourse, not just about God, but to God, directly to God, with God, and in God. The best theologians have always known that this is how theology is supposed to go. Already in the Psalms and the Prophets, we find abrupt and odd shifts of speech. One moment the psalmist or prophet will be talking about God, but then suddenly will be speaking directly to God, just like Job did. Such shifts are common, too, in the great theological texts. Anselm's, Proslogion, Augustine's Confessions, Julian of Norwich's Showings, and the list goes on. Poor theologians, on the other hand, do not know this truth about theology. C.S. Lewis makes this point memorably in his little book, The Great Divorce, which tells of a bus ride from hell to the outskirts of heaven. After disembarking, the bus riders have a chance to talk with angelic figures, citizens of heaven, and should the visitors choose to stay, they can. But of the many bus riders, sadly, only one makes that choice. The rest return to their small, hellish lives down there. One of the bus riders who chooses to return is, wait for it, wait for it, a theologian. A famous one, in fact, 
who enjoyed great popularity while alive. Strong book sales, numerous speaking invitations, even status as a bishop. Uh, Lewis is he's hitting a little close to home, people. <laughs> Stay in your lane, C.S. <laughs> Why does this person return back down there? Well, as he himself explains, because they have a little theological society down there where people continue to talk and give papers about God and his paper's up for discussion next Tuesday. The novel goes on to explain why someone, even someone like this character, would choose hell over heaven. Every poet and musician and artist, and given the bishop, we must add theologian, except for God's grace, Lewis says, is drawn away from love of the thing they talk about to the love of the talking only. Until, down in deep hell, they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about God. For it doesn't stop at being overly interested in paint or poetry or music or theology, you know. They sink lower. They become interested in their own personalities and then in nothing but their own reputations in nothing but their own words about God, you see. Their own papers or sermons about God or about God's word, their own resumes, their own accomplishments, their own pastorates and power and status and bishoprics and all the rest. Their own. Just theirs. Not God's, you see. And definitely not to God. Just about. At best, just about God. And often, not even that. But certainly not to God. Never to. And that simply isn't correct. Not according to me. And not according to Job. But according to God as recorded in the book of Job. So the stakes in this little preposition L simply couldn't be higher this difference between talking about God versus talking to God could be a matter of life and death, judgment or vindication, perdition or glory. Maybe that is why James says not many of us should want to be teachers because those of who are teachers or preachers or theologians will be judged more strictly because, the epistle says, all of us make many mistakes when we talk only about God. And, and maybe that is why James's older brother said, whoa, to any of us who cause one of these little ones to stumble. Better to have a big millstone tied around our necks and drown in the ocean than do that. Because you see, theologians who talk only about and not to, who are interested only in themselves and their own reputations, well, you know, they can't point to God, can they? No, of course not. They can only point through God and theology and church or whatever else, right? right back squarely to themselves. And that, in the end, is idolatry. Worship of another god, which is the ultimate stumbling block for little ones. And for full-grown adult ones, too. Now, if all of that is right, or, well, because all of that is right, maybe we should practice a bit of what I'm preaching. Or at least maybe I should do that, since I'm up the one here preaching about it. So here goes. I've been talking a lot about God in this sermon. 
But good Lord, enough of that already. Please, Lord, we don't know what we're doing or what we're saying half the time. At least I don't. Of course, I want to. I want to be in the know. I want to seem knowledgeable. I want to appear expert. And what better thing to be expert in than the things of God? Things about you. To know something important about the most important thing, the most important person in the universe. And so, by extension, to have some of that importance, your importance, rub off on me to my vainglorious benefit. But you, Lord, have shown us, you've shown me through your servant Job and, and also through his friends, good seminary grads, every one of them, also your servants, You've shown us that you'd prefer to be spoken to rather than spoken about. Not to mention that your thoughts are not our thoughts, Lord. Neither are your ways our ways, because who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Certainly not us. We know, thanks to Ecclesiastes, that even the wise among us often don't know a single thing about what they're talking about. So here we are, here here I am, wanting good things, knowledge of you, but messing it all up as usual, floundering about like so many well-meaning fools, but, but with such panache and great learning. Forgive us our foolish ways, Lord, and our poor theology that at its best is still oh so sadly and laughingly inadequate of you. And yet even so, Lord, we give you thanks that despite all shortcomings and failures and mistakes, you've given us your word, given us your son, and given us your spirit. That's, that's enough for us. Help us to offer worthy, not worthless words. And help us to utter them to you. Come, Lord, help your servants, bought with the price of your own blood, and bring us with your servants, like Job, to glory everlasting. Hear this word from the Lord. The wise shouldn't boast in their wisdom. The mighty shouldn't boast in their strength. The wealthy shouldn't boast in their riches. No. No, those who boast should boast in this that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord. Amen.